Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour. Um, we will get started on our call on uh, alcohol and global health. Um, it's such a pleasure to have you all listening today. Uh, this Public Health Power Hour is almost weekly or most weeks discussion on the relationship between personal health and public health. And to us, that means everything that surrounds us that makes good health and healthy choices possible. That means clean air and water. It means access to medicines, healthy food. Um, it means places to exercise. It means culture that supports health and healthy choices and removing barriers like bias. It also means commercial determinants of health and the power of corporations and, and other forces that shape the environment around us and shape the potential for our health. And COVID-19 has really shown us we have so much more to do to ensure that people are surrounded by environments that make uh, maximum health possible. My name is Steve Hamill. I'm Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. And we wanted to create this space uh, for people who really want to reimagine public health so that it's bolder and stronger and better, and that it's at the center of commerce at social life and civic life. And we're here each week to learn about different areas of public health, to listen to and to share different perspectives. And we have a different focused topic each week, but we also wanna take a look at the big picture. And we've had fantastic discussions on lots of different topics, this week on alcohol, last week on British American tobacco and some nefarious activities. They had an African influence policy on equity, on gender. Um, we're discussing it, all the important topics each week of public health. Um, if you've missed these episodes, you can listen back on SoundCloud by visiting soundcloud.com slash vital strategies. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, drop us an email at powerhour at vital strategies. And please follow us here on Twitter at vital strat. And each week you can learn about the different topics we have. But I'm really excited to turn to this week's topic on alcohol and global health. We have a fantastic panel of experts, as I said, in this really under-examined global health problem. I'll introduce each of our panelists and kind of warm up the room uh, with a segment we call Health News of the Week. We've asked each panelist to pick a news story that caught their eye recently. And if you're in the audience um, and you wanna share something from your country, your context, an issue you care about, you can raise your hand using that little heart button at the bottom. Uh, and we may have time to pull a few people up to share a piece of news that you think is interesting that people may or may not have heard. 
So I'm going to turn to our uh, first colleague, um, Adam Carpati, who's Senior Vice President of Public Programs, Public Health Programs here at Vital Strategies. Welcome, Adam. Um, can you share an article that caught your eye this week? Uh, thanks very much. And it's, it's good to be on. I'm looking forward to the discussion today. Um, so I, um, uh, I hail originally from Canada. Um, and I follow the news there, uh, though I live in New York now, I follow the news there quite closely um, and have been struck by it's a whole, a whole series of, of articles. And this, this is really about sort of the COVID situation, about the um, differing, um, the very different uh, experiences that the different provinces in Canada are having around, around the outbreak um, how in some places the outbreak is is really quite you know still raging um, uh, with healthcare systems uh, overwhelmed in other parts of the country uh, those with higher vaccination rates especially um, the rates are more manageable and the um, and the uh, the hospital system less stressed uh, and so um, you know it the the, the media uh, conversation. Um, there is is really uh, focused on this balance um, between uh, vaccine mandates, um, the need for vaccine mandates, um, the question and the need really for more uh, for continuing um, uh, ob um, uh, obligations on mask wearing um, versus uh, you know a more of a of a reopening and. Um, and kind of trying to 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 find a new normal, uh, and how it's being played out differently in different uh, different parts of the country. Uh, it's not as contentious. Um, uh, some of these issues are not as contentious in Canada, but there definitely are uh, a lot of uh, uh, there are some um, areas and some some parts of the country where where these these issues um, of liberty, of, you know, framed as personal liberties, are really about. Um, really about not understanding uh, the public health imperatives and the collective uh, implications of individual uh, decisions. Um, so that's just uh, something I've been struck by recently. It's something that's playing out in countries all over the world uh, and one in which the public health community, I think, needs to continue to you know, have a strong voice. Thank you for bringing that into the room. I've also, as a you know, a New Yorker and watching a little bit of the news, I've also been struck. I mean, everywhere, but in Canada, about you know just how COVID has revealed that public health is po political. It is politics, and I think it's that's part of the the motivation for discussions like these has been um, let's reveal how the environment around us that makes health possible is shaped by the political decisions and by non-political actors or non-public health actors in so many ways. Um, Alison Douglas is the chief executive of Alcohol Focus Scotland. So happy to have you in the discussion today. Welcome, Alison. Would you like to share a story of interest? Hi, Stephen. Yeah, delighted to. Um, my one's a bit more alcohol specific. Um, and it's a story from today uh, here in Scotland um, about uh, research that's come out on alcohol marketing during the 2020 Six Nations Championships. Um, that's an international rugby union competition. Um, and researchers, uh, Dr. Richard Purvis and Dr. Nathan Critchlow um, at Stirling University have 
um, been looking at how frequently alcohol adverts or alcohol merchandise um, or references to, to alcohol products appear during um, rugby union matches, very high profile rugby union matches that are watched by 125 million people. And what they found was an extraordinary frequency of alcohol references in the England-Scotland game, which would be the the old rivals game, uh, alcohol adverts appeared every 12 seconds. But I think one of the most interesting things about this study is that, um, as some of you may be aware, there are very different rules on alcohol marketing um, in different countries in, in Europe and in particular in France, where they have uh, what was intended to be quite a restrictive um, regime statutory regime controlling alcohol marketing. Um, but what the researchers found that uh, the marketers were able to get around those regulations by instead of using Guinness advertising, using greatness. Um, so just simply by substituting that word, but the the branding, the colour, the, the script being identical to Guinness, obviously every everyone watching that knows the brand. Um, so I think this is this is very pertinent to us here in Scotland as we actively think about how we go ahead and control alcohol marketing and um, just about how comprehensive the approach needs to be to avoid um, the creative genius of the, the marketers. That's fascinating and disturbing. Every 12 seconds. Wow. Um, and I know we'll be getting more deeply into this conversation about alcohol marketing and um, and the pernicious influence of the industry. Um, thank you for bringing that uh, into the room. Um, uh, last but not least, the esteemed Pabudu Sumana Sakara, Executive Director of Alcohol and Drug Information Center and Vice President of Movendi International. Welcome, Pabudu. Is there an article you'd like to bring the attention of our audience to? Yeah, actually, uh, I would like to share that uh, after 40 days of lockdown, that tomorrow the country will be open. Uh, I'm uh, talking from Sri Lanka. And uh, uh, it's a bit of a kind of a shocking thing for us because uh, actually before one week, uh, the lockdown uh, is open, that actually bars open in Sri Lanka. So there were huge protests against that as because alcohol is a, huge negative factor for COVID-19. And there are so many uh, other implications because of opening the bars. So uh, what we learned was that it is because of uh, not the expert uh, kind of uh, advisors, but that is how the kind of uh, political powers uh, working with the industry uh, to do such kind of uh, uh, actions. So that is what uh, we are dealing with now, and uh, we will be working on it uh, the coming few weeks. Thank you, and thanks for giving us the view from Sri Lanka. I'm glad to hear your hope coming out of lockdown, and um, yeah, it's interesting to hear about the the alcohol and um, you know the bars. Um, let's let's pivot to our main discussion here, um, Adam. Maybe we can start with you to set the stage a bit. Um, you know, 
there's a growing momentum to prioritize alcohol control as a public health issue. Um, can you start by setting the stage again? Like, what's behind this momentum? You know, what's the scale and scope of alcohol as a public health problem? Sure. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, there's been a lot of attention on, uh, uh, over the years, increasing attention on um, the, the, the adverse health impacts of, of, of tobacco, of unhealthy food, uh, and of other, um, maybe we'd call the commercial determinants of health, um, unhealthy products that are promoted heavily and um, by, by industries um, that have a lot of money behind them um, and, and that have significant health impacts. Alcohol is one of those, um, has not received the kind of public health and policy attention that some of the other, some other products have had, but, but really um, contributes significantly to um, uh, health and development, um, uh, poor health and development burdens around the world. Um, the WHO estimates that uh, about 3 million deaths a year are attributable to, um, to alcohol. Uh, and importantly, uh, the, you know, uh, the range of, of, of health conditions uh, that, that, that alcohol consumption is associated with uh, is really, really broad. Um, and, and also the risk uh, of alcohol uh, to, to health is is not only in the in among those who um, who consume alcohol in the heaviest amounts, uh, those with alcohol use disorders, etc., but but many uh, of these burdens um, occur in those um, um, who drink uh, uh, alcohol uh, uh, in high, in high amounts um, intermittently, um, and even uh, increasingly recognize that alcohol in um, in uh, in smaller amounts uh, produces uh, health risks. The kind of issues we're talking about, of course, range from you know uh, cardiovascular diseases to uh, cancers, and it's really increasingly um, known that that uh, cancer risk from alcohol consumption can be at relatively low levels of consumption. Um, uh, liver diseases, uh, infectious diseases like t- tuberculosis and HIV, um, uh, as well as many. Um, uh, injuries um, uh, uh, and and violent deaths, uh, so uh, car crashes, falls, um, suicide, homicide. So so the range is is broad, um, and and the risk um, is, is is across really high, you know, really wide um, uh, groups of groups of individuals, and 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 also the the burden is borne um, heavily both in low income. Um, and in high-income countries around the world. So it's truly a global public health um, challenge um, compounded by a few different factors. One, that it's often not appreciated as such, uh, and also because of the strong influence uh, on consumption and on um, um, uh, social norms generated by the marketing and the power of the alcohol industry. I'm so glad you painted a picture of, you know, what, poor health outcomes from alcohol looks like, because I feel like a lot of people understand, you know, you can get drunk and crash a car, and that's sort of the popular, uh, you know, understanding of how alcohol harms, but you've connected it to like a whole range of other, you know, poor outcomes. Can you also share a little bit about, you know, 
So what are we supposed to do? What's the public health approach to driving down harmful alcohol use? What would we like to see happen? Well, the good the good news on that front about strategies to reduce um, alcohol-related harms is that there's good science and good experience on what works. Uh, and um, predominantly, the strategies that work the best um, to reduce consumption and reduce harms uh, are policy uh, interventions um, that governments can take. Uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, um, has developed a uh, very specific and very um, focused um, technical package of uh, high-priority, highly evidence-based strategies for reducing the harms of alcohol consumption. It's an acronym, has an acronym, it's called SAFER, and I encourage folks to um, read more about this um, on the WHO website. SAFER stands for uh, Strengthening Restrictions on Alcohol Availability. So this is about the regulatory schemes that govern um, who can buy alcohol, when it can be purchased, um, and, um, and where it can be purchased. So restricting availability is an important strategy. Um, A, advance and enforce drink driving countermeasures. So obviously alcohol consumption and driving are an important risk factor for road crashes and, and road uh, deaths are, are one of the leading causes of death in the world, including the leading cause in, in young adults. F, facilitate access to screening, grief interventions and treatment. So this is the individual level clinical uh, interventions um, uh, that uh, can help people reduce their uh, reduce risky drinking. Um, e, enforce bans or comprehensive restrictions on alcohol advertising, sponsorship, and promotion. Obviously, this is a very important dimension, as we've already heard, the marketing of to, to restrict industry's ability to market alcohol. And last and probably most important um, are raise prices on alcohol through uh, excise taxes and other pricing policies. So um, the price of, of unhealthy commodities is an important driver of consumption, and raising taxes is probably the most important thing governments can do to address alcohol-related harm. Mm -hmm. That's that's great. And I, I'm happy to that our next two guests can help us understand or share how these play out in the real world, how these interventions happen in real life, and some of the impacts they've had. Allison, Scotland's making headlines for bold public health measures in the last few years around alcohol control and and generating data that you know real world data they seem to be very successful. Um, can you share a little bit about them? I know that they're related to the last or the most recent one is related to the last point that Adam talked about around raising the price of alcohol and tax. Correct, um, but. But maybe first you could set that. What were the conditions in Scotland beforehand? You know, what did the situation look like that demanded an intervention? Thanks, Steve. Yeah, well, I guess firstly, we had a huge problem in Scotland and it had been deteriorating for some time. So between 1990 and 2000, we saw um, a more than doubling of uh, alcohol, liver disease deaths and cirrhosis deaths in Scotland from about 30 per 100,000 to 70 per 100,000. So obviously something was going really badly wrong. So so that was the crisis. Um, it was also kind of interesting from a political point of view because for the first time we had um, a nationalist government um, 
come into power and it was shortly after uh, there had been a ban on smoking in public places implemented in Scotland by the previous government. So that incoming government wanted to make its mark on public health and alcohol was frankly crying out for for a, a massive change. So they were really receptive to um, the WHO evidence and similarly OECD and what um, was being said about the best buys um, for, for alcohol um, policy. And they've radically changed the direction of travel. So from having really conceived of the problem or the, the kind of conception of the problem prior to that point was it's about people getting drunk and causing problems on a Friday or a Saturday night, you know, um, fighting um, and uh, making the streets unsafe. And really what, um, in the early 2000s or, or about 2008, what, what the new government was saying was, we need to understand this at a whole population level, that, you know, this is being driven by very low-cost alcohol, which is increasingly being sold in supermarkets. We'd, we'd kind of moved from drinking in bars and restaurants to, like, three-quarters of the alcohol sold being drunk at home. And the impact of that, we were able to describe the impact of that in much broader terms rather than it simply being about... Um, the number of crimes that were associated with alcohol. It was a broader explanation and evidence around the impact on the economy, which was uh, estimated at uh, $4.8 billion a year, which um, was really a massive sum, sum of money or, or an overhead on our economy and on uh, people's well-being. Um, so, so really, that 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 was the significant change was saying that this is not just about a small group of drinkers who don't know how to control themselves. This is a societal issue that is being driven, as the WHO and others had said, uh, by uh, the low cost, the ready availability, and the heavy marketing of alcohol. And so, the government. Um, produced a strategy and I, I should say for clarification that I was I was a, um, a civil servant at the time who led the development of that policy um, that had a range of measures um, I think 40 plus measures including um, controls around the upselling of alcohol so buy, buy one get one free or buy three for the price of two um, and they also had uh, investment and treatment in there and a range of other things. But one of the, the core policies was um, to, to bring in a minimum unit price for alcohol. And it, that, that price was basically about putting a floor price in um, below which a unit of alcohol could not be sold. Um, and, you know, there had been other other models of minimum unit price of 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 minimum pricing, but this was the first time I think uh, um, globally where there was a minimum unit price. Um, part of the reason for going for that mechanism, um, you know, Adam mentioned about taxation. Well, taxation wasn't an option in Scotland because we do not have the powers to uh, to modify alcohol taxes. So part of the decision to go with minimum unit price was driven by necessity. 
But what we realised when we commissioned the modelling from uh, the University of Sheffield was that actually the impact of minimum unit price is much more targeted than taxation because it addresses the low-cost, high-strength alcohol, which is actually um, linked more directly to harmful drinking. Um, so... You know, if I was if I was sort of advocating from a blank sheet, I would say do minimum unit price plus taxation. Um, but uh, minimum unit price certainly has particular benefits in terms of targeting that low cost, high strength alcohol. Um, and that that's proven to be the case in the evidence, uh, the evaluations so far of the impact of minimum unit price. Um we have seen a 3.5% reduction in off-trade alcohol sales in Scotland in the first year of implementation. Um, we saw a 10% reduction in alcohol-specific deaths in the first year following introduction. And we've seen some small reductions in hospital admissions, specifically um, liver disease-related hospital admissions in the first two years. And in terms of the uh, mark the alcohol that's on sale now in Scotland, certain products that were very, very cheap and very high strength have actually disappeared from the supermarket shelves and the, the corner shops that sold them previously. Wow, there's so much to dig into that in that story. I, 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 I loved hearing how you know, public health progress became a political win. And that that was kind of one of the drivers and and that how important it was to change the frame of the debate, the kind of public understanding around alcohol as a problem. And then also, yeah, I think the story, a story behind the story is, you know, your your, you know, the government's determination to find a policy to work that works and kind of going around the limitation of no taxation and finding this minimum unit pricing. Um, that's that's really remarkable. Um, I want to bring Prabhu in as well, um, and, and we can discuss some of those issues a little bit more broadly. Um, Pabudu, can you take us to a, a different country and situation? Can you, you're in Sri Lanka, but you also um, work in Muvendi in, in sort of the global south um, in alcohol control work. Can you share a little bit about how the epidemiology of alcohol use is similar or different in Sri Lanka or in the global south? Is it different in significant ways from the conditions that Alison's describing in Scotland or or similar? Thank you, Steve. I think uh, when it comes to the developing part of the world, like my country, Sri Lanka, and we have many uh, member uh, organizations in developing world in the moment international. So according to our understanding, the kind of damage done by alcohol to the developing world is massive in many ways. One is that actually our people uh, spend, if I take some examples from Sri Lanka, that one third of their income goes for alcohol in some families. So most of the, family, most of the families are under the poverty line. So alcohol actually create poverty and perpetuate poverty in, in the developing part of the world. So if somebody says that people do not earn money in the developing world, we don't agree with that. The problem here is people really earn money in the developing world. But the kind of sad part is that the kind of uh, corporate sector 
that uh, rob the money earned by keeper so uh, as adam said the kind of uh, uh, marketing strategies of alcohol industry how they targeting the poor countries and the poor people in asia and africa so uh, the poverty created by alcohol and perpetuated by alcohol and then those families and the societies at the end could not be able to come out of it because the alcohol industry not only promoted and they know how to keep people using alcohol until they die in generations that is the big part how the economic burden of alcohol in 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 the developing part of the world and the other sad part is that because of this uh, global village or the kind of technology that we have the wifi the internet and everything so the industry is specifically targeting different regions when they come to asia their strategy is different when they go to africa the strategy is different so at the end of the day the innocent people who are always dealing with the high technology but do not have much knowledge about what is coming through these kind of things all the surrogate advertising is happening in my country that we have a alcohol control law and electronic media advertising is completely banned print media is completely banned and uh, the sellers can't sell alcohol young people who are under the 21 the, the laws are there but the industry knows how to use the loopholes and actually targeting the young people and unfortunately not like the wealthy part of the world that our countries may not have enough resources to deal with those kind of things therefore if we face a kind of issue whether it is health whether it is economic or whether it is social it is not that easy for us to come out and as uh, alison and adam uh, correctly uh, explain the kind of influence uh, made by the industries to policy making so that is that is also very strategic so therefore the kind of problem is created and when people try to coming out of it the industry is manipulating the policy process in the country so that is happening in africa that is happening in asia all the developing part of it i know that it is happening in the developed part of the world also uh, but when it comes to those kind of issues so it is a kind of huge barrier to coming out from the poverty so that block the development of the country so we know that uh, there are sdgs there are the, all the nice concepts are there in the world but uh, 15 out of 17 sdgs are directly affected by alcohol use and uh, all the other type of development concepts are blocking and at the same time that it is marketing as a kind of thing that i also want to add it through this surrogate advertising it market as a kind of uh, uh, thing that it gives you happiness it gives you whatever you want in the world but at the end of the day that is not the truth so alcohol is a depressant so 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 that is how they deceive young people and that is how they market it so 
that is what is happening in our part of the world steve that's uh it's really disturbing and interesting uh, i i want to bring two things we've kind of heard together or maybe three thoughts together in a question for you adam i mean first we heard from everybody about the power of the industry at that the alcohol industry is really a vector for harms particularly the marketing that uh, changes the way people understand alcohol and its harms we, we also heard from allison just how important that kind of changing the frame of the debate from oh drunk people getting in fights and crashing cars to a to much more public health approach was really instrumental in in making change in scotland and yet you know there seems that this huge barrier seems to be that people think alcohol is a personal problem and a choice problem and the industries of you know you know, really behind that kind of frame. You even hear, you know, that alcohol is really good for your heart. There's this really complicated, popular notion of uh, of about alcohol as a harmful product or not. C- can you speak to that? Sure. Um, I, I, I think that the points you made are absolutely right. There are a number of kind of narratives um, or conventional wisdoms um, that are, are really uh, counterproductive and really undermine or can be used uh, often by industry to undermine um, the policy strategies that we know work. Um, one of them, as you allude to, is this sort of personal choice uh, uh, idea. And really, I think, you know, the, the insights that, uh, in public health that uh, we've had for, for, for many decades um, that we need to continue to highlight are that um, you know, personal choices, uh, behavioral choices, health uh, risk uh, choices um, don't occur in vacuums. They are shaped, strongly shaped by the social, um, political, commercial, envir- uh, physical environment in which people live. Um, and, um, and so the, uh, the strategies of making healthy choices easy um, is uh, really is the easy choice is um, is where these policy interventions come from um, because it's uh, it's over it's it's simplistic and not accurate um, to imply that uh, um, that uh, individual behavior choices like uh, drinking alcohol um, are not uh, are not influenced um, and driven really not just influenced but driven by context that's one. The other one, as you allude to, is um, is the uh, unfortunate um, and really, you know, there's an evolution of science around the um, the so-called health benefits of uh, moderate alcohol consumption. Uh, in- increasingly um, and quite um, strongly, uh, um, the science points to um, the lack of any uh, overall health benefits to alcohol consumption. Um, uh, and really the, um, as I was, as I said before, not just the lack of any health benefits, but the health risks associated with, uh, even small levels, even low levels of alcohol consumption. Um, and that's what leads, uh, WHO and other, uh, organizations to, to, to not recommend, uh, you know, to not, uh, to not cite any level of drinking as, uh, as, as, as without risk. 
Um, unfortunately, because and many of the studies, some of the older studies on relationship between alcohol and mortality or alcohol and certain risk factors, um, uh, did show some benefits, but there were a lot of methodologic uh, issues, a lot of uh, epidemiologic confounding in the, some of those earlier studies that um, more uh, recent uh, evidence really uh, confirms uh, the absence of an overall um, health benefit. But so that that but yet that narrative persists um, and is often used, um, unfortunately, to uh, to color the debate. I, Allison, I kind of want to turn to you and plumb the your experience in Scotland. I mean, you've had success that I think we want to replicate around the world. Actually, it's I just to share a tangential story. It, I, a couple of years ago, I went to the World Social Marketing Conference on um, in in Edinburgh in Scotland. And I went to the four, I think there were four sessions on alcohol control and three of them were funded by AB InBev or one of the alcohol, um, alcohol uh, giants. And, you know, what this kind of, what Adam was talking about, this kind of choice frame was even in these, you know, supposed public health projects, you know, funded to teach kids not to do, not to drink too much. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an adult, adult thing to drink. I'm just wondering how prominent those kinds of public narratives and the overt or invisible hand of the industry driving those narratives were in, in the, in the kind of fight to get a much more comprehensive alcohol control set of policies in, in Scotland. Thanks, Steve. Um, yeah, well, I guess one of the first things to say is when I kind of was working on alcohol policy within government before I um, moved into the voluntary sector into an NGO, um, we actually had a partnership between the Scottish government and the alcohol industry. And um, they, I think, assumed that because of that partnership, the government wouldn't uh, really threaten their interests. They kind of, they thought they had a bit of an inside track. And I think it was frankly a, a nasty surprise to them that um, government was really actively thinking about um, the, the most effective evidence-based interventions. And, you know, people will be well aware that we ended up having a six-year legal battle following the approval of the legislation by the Scottish Parliament to actually get that legislation implemented. And it went through the European courts and then to the UK Supreme Court before it was finally accepted that the Scottish Parliament had the right to legislate um, to implement minimum unit price. And, you know, so we saw up close the tactics of the industry in trying to um, delay that uh, legislation to distract from evidence-based policies by funding projects that really um, had no significant impact on consumption and harm um, by you know, bullying, I suppose, that's my, my own word, um, uh, politicians here in Scotland, um, threatening them about, you know, the implications for uh, international trade because of the significance of the whiskey industry to uh, not just Scotland's balance of trade, but the UK's balance of trade. So, you know, they basically used every every tactic in the book um, 
in order to try and stop the legislation in the first place and then to uh, contest it um when it was uh, when it was approved so um you know i i think because of that for for many politicians um they're they're now pretty jaundiced about uh, the role of the alcohol industry um in their their genuine will and i i guess really you know fundamentally for me it's about there is a conflict of interest of course there's a conflict of interest because those companies exist to increase profit for their shareholders. Um, it, it is uh, part of their legal duty to to do that. And therefore, um, really, it then becomes an argument about how do we safeguard uh, public health policy from that conflict of interest? And, you know, I w- would really hope that there's been some talk about, well, is the time coming for... Um, the equivalent of the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control for Alcohol. And I really hope that um, that that turns into something practical um, because that that's really what we need in order to, to ensure that public health policy is in the interests of the people. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that link. Um, I was also uh, for the with the tobacco control, and I was also reflecting last week we had a, a power hour discussion with some colleagues who um, did work investigating and released a, a, a groundbreaking report. I encourage you to look for it on, at exposedtobacco.org that showed how uh, British American tobacco's activities influenced public health policy potentially in, 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 in more than a dozen countries in Africa. And part of the outflow of that conversation was that, you know, underlining just how difficult these public health issues that have commercial determinants are, they require um, legal expertise, they require, you know, political advocacy, strategic communications, uh, you know, industry monitoring, and really a whole host of skills that maybe, you know, they don't teach you in public health school or in, in med- when you're getting becoming a doctor. And it's it's been a challenge for public health movements to really take up some of these skills um, tobacco control in some ways has been leading the way. Pabudu, I know you're, you're working um, across a number of countries. I was wanted to invite you to reflect upon the challenge of the industry and the kind of, uh, you know, that this multiple different types of skills that it takes to make progress in, in Sri Lanka or elsewhere in the world. Uh, yes, Steve. Uh, I would like to tell again where I stopped uh, in the last uh, section, alcohol is a depressant. We are talking about a dull chemical after drinking that it makes you tired. And the science is there now, so we can easily understand the pleasure part of alcohol is really added one through the kind of advertising in the today's world and historically by the kind of cultural norms and all. And the other thing is the social norms. So if you remove all these things from alcohol, there's nothing inside there. Only the negative kind of feelings you can have. But I know some of uh, you in this discussion today even will not believe what I say, because even your own experience of alcohol is attached with kind of fun and relaxed moments and all. 
So that is one thing that we have to understand that we are talking about a very dull chemical, which actually the chemical is uh, in that sense, no such power there. But all these kind of influences and the powers are added kind of things by the marketeers and the, uh, the kind of vested interest people, the corporate sector. So they know how to do this. So my, my, my example is like, it is like actually marketing high heels for ladies because it is painful, it is discomfort, but over, over again, that ladies uh, tend to use high heels, not because it gives you a kind of comfort, but kind of other things. So I, I, I told you this story because it is very important for us to deal with the countries that we are working with less resources. So because getting a policy done in a country, in my experience in Sri Lanka, to get the alcohol control policy approved by the parliament, we were actually fighting for 14 years and like four governments. So it was like that. And it needs a kind of huge human resources and you need a kind of academic and the professional support. So as Steve, you said that alcohol industry knows the kind of strengths and the weaknesses of the different countries. So the Sri Lanka, I think in the region that we have one of the best alcohol control policy, but we actually now are trying to amend it to make it more powerful. But as I said, even with such policy, the industries know how to infiltrate the countries, as I said, through the Bollywood and the Hollywood and uh, other kind of cinemas and maybe TikTok, that we know that there are so many alcohol industry individuals working in the Facebook kind of Twitter or whatever the kind of social media, because they are, their job is to uh, upload a picture with the alcohol bottle or uh, upload the kind of TikTok uh, kind of thing uh, using young people to promote it to others. So therefore, the, the, the dealing with the alcohol industry and the fighting with alcohol industry, we need uh, kind of different strategies in different countries. And we must, I think, uh, study the alcohol industry a lot because they, they, they appear in a kind of sometimes in uh, different ways. So they have there are a lot of uh, ways of camouflaging themselves. So in, in as I said, that uh, the burden is huge. Actually, sometimes the people understand the size of the burden. The magnitude of the problem is uh, proven. The issue here is why the actions are not taken. So this is not only to the developing country level. Uh, as we all know, it is up to the level of World Health Organization. So the global strategy came into the discussion many years back. But if you look at today, can be happy about the development of that strategy in the different countries? Can be happy about the tools developed to deal with the alcohol industry and to develop the effective alcohol control policies in the country? Can we happy about the support given by the World Health Organization to the countries to uh, deal with this uh, big alcohol issue? It is not, it is not. So what we can understand here is that, so even I always, we always talk about some terms using even in the alcohol prevention field. So we always heard the term 
like uh, harmful use of alcohol. So it is very tricky term that when young people, children heard about it, they can think of then what is the harmless use of alcohol. So these all kind of things that we have to be very vigilant about the subtle uh, influences of the alcohol industry as I said, that to the country level, the region, and the global, and, and to the level of the health authorities in that sense. So therefore, that uh, we are uh, dealing uh, with uh, this industry in different levels. So one thing I'm very happy about is that the countries, the civil society organizations, academics, and the professionals now know about it very well. But we are still lacking of the strategies to deal with it. That is why it's taking too much time that we have everything. We know what to do when it comes to alcohol best buys, about the, uh, the taxation thing and about restricting the availability. We know everything. The problem here is why there is no such implementation fast. So that is the problem here. So there, mm -hmm. so we have to understand the alcohol industry is very close to us, like listening to this discussion today and thinking of how can they actually weaken this. I, 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 it, I, I love the comparison, the high heels as public health issue. And I think you may have millions of feet, uh, you know, agreeing with uh, the idea to de-glamorize uh, uh, high heels. Um, but really, you know, more seriously about the importance of perception of the product and that people have to, that the popular opinion is to agree. We have to understand that this harmful substance. I want to switch tacks just briefly for a minute and talk about alcohol control in the shadow of COVID. I mean, COVID-19 dominates our understanding of public health now and popular understanding of why public health is useful or not. Um, and, and of course, the progress that we want to make in countries and globally is going to be happening for the next year in the context of COVID-19. Um, Adam, maybe you could talk a little bit about the global picture. Um, have we seen any data that shows, um, you know, either how the industry or how people are using alcohol differently? You know, how do we speak to this issue in the, in the COVID-19 era? I mean, I think that there's um, some very concerning uh, trends um, that, that really have implications for public policy. Um, in, in the COVID era around, um, uh, in the context of public health and social measures, uh, the um, uh, ways in which um, uh, alcohol is becoming more available. Now, in some, in some countries, and I, I, I do, I commend our colleagues at Movendi International for documenting a lot of these stories and encourage folks to, to take a look at the, at the Movendi website for, for some of these examples. There have been some you know, some dramatic policy shifts in, in both directions. In some countries, uh, some very, uh, a lot more restrictions on availability, but in others, um, loosening of restrictions on availability, especially um, uh, um, making alcohol more available through internet sales, home deliveries, and, um, and things like that. So I think that um, it's really important in the poli for, for policymakers to... Um, to really scrutinize these types of, of availability and regulatory decisions, um, and 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 continue to follow the science and the uh, WHO recommendations on availability restriction, um, not loosening. 
Um, and another thing, just to get back to the sort of uh, alcohol perception as a as a public health problem or lack thereof, I mean, just look at some of the um, strategies uh, uh, or some of the, the, the way the conversation is framed, uh, for example, in the United States, where um, the, 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 the president was, uh, uh, was um, cited, you know, free beer, um, you know, in partnership with an alcohol of, uh, a company for, vac- uh, for those getting vaccines, right? The linking of alcohol consumption to, uh, to, to, to vaccination. So that, again, it illustrates that we have, we have a, a long way to go in, in changing norms and changing uh, the way that the, um, the public perceives, uh, perceives this product. So I think there's some concerning uh, trends in the COVID context around alcohol um, policy. Thanks. And I'm, I'll ask uh, Pabudu and Allison to follow up. But if you're in the audience and have a comment or a question, you can uh, raise your hand using the little heart icon at the bottom or request the mic. We'd be happy to have a comment or question uh, for our speakers from the audience. Um, Pabudu, what about you? Is it, has the has the popular understanding or government action in the face of COVID-19 changed in Sri Lanka or other countries that you're supporting? Yeah, it is like this. Uh, If I take an example from my country that the COVID situation that uh, helped to people understand that they can live without alcohol because daily paid workers, we know that those people, they are forced to drink alcohol at the end of the day because they were deceived by telling that Alcohol helps them to get rid of the tiredness, which is not scientifically correct, but that is what they believe. But because of the COVID situation and the kind of restrictions that we have, and uh, uh, during the lockdown period that mostly the bars were closed in Sri Lanka, I know other countries also did some, and some actually opposite, as Adam said. Uh, one thing, one good thing happened was that the people understand that alcohol not a kind of essential thing in their life because otherwise be, nowadays people force not to drink because of the COVID situation and then people understand it. It is not a kind of essential thing. And we uh, did a kind of research even inside the country to how people perceive these days and without having alcohol and the families, how they perceive it and the kind of user uh, himself and finally, what we found was that users said that they are actually now uh, much better. And because they did not have uh, time to spend with their friends who are always drinking alcohol, and then they are out of alcohol for some weeks, and they feel energetic. Because otherwise, they were always under the influence of a depressant. But that is one good thing. And the other thing is, uh, the health authorities highly advocate to people uh, not to drink alcohol because it actually reduces the level of uh, uh, immunity uh, in the uh, the people. And on the other hand, that uh, if you drink alcohol in a kind of uh, group setting, that spreading the COVID-19 virus. So therefore, in the health authorities also, they started understanding the, the burden of disease of alcohol through the lens of COVID-19. I think that is uh, the one, one uh, good example that we can take, uh, even though the COVID-19 is fully negative effect happened to the world, but inside that there are 
things happen positive in the families that we when we did the research they reported that the family harmony went up but we were shocked hearing in some wealthy countries they have reported that because of covid people were at home and the family violence went up but i think i can't agree that with the kind of asian region especially in our countries as we did the research the family harmony went up uh, because of uh, absence of alcohol so that is uh, our reading of uh, covid-19 and alcohol mm-hmm. it's interesting and you actually started off this uh, discussion by talking about the lockdown and that this sort of introduced this debate about the role of bars in society and is it really how important is it alison did you see that in scotland does that mirror or you know how did covid-19 affect the momentum of alcohol control in scotland Unfortunately, the UK was one of the countries that decided that off-licenses places to buy alcohol were um, fell under essential shops, and so they were allowed to stay open. Um, we actually saw some lobbying here in Scotland to reduce the um, the hour at which you could start to buy alcohol. So usually that's ten o'clock in the morning here, and so a rather specious argument was uh, made that because older people and people who were um, essential workers were shopping uh, had protected time to shop earlier in the day that we should re- we should um, allow them to buy alcohol at say eight o'clock in the morning I'm glad to say that that didn't happen um, but yeah I think uh, the industry have made full advantage have taken full advantage of um the covid pandemic to to really ramp up the the digital dimension of their marketing and of uh sales as adam was talking about and sort of starting to really integrate the marketing and purchasing and delivery of alcohol um you know it's the it it's the marketers aim to to create frictionless consumption and i feel like you know some significant steps have been made in that direction um over the last uh, 18 months or so and that really concerns me the other thing i just quickly wanted to say was that what we saw here in scotland was that heavier drinkers were those who were most vulnerable to increasing their consumption during the pandemic and very sadly i mentioned earlier that in the first year of minimum unit price we saw a reduction in alcohol specific deaths of 10% that was completely reversed during the pandemic so in 2020 we saw deaths go up by 17% um so sadly covid has really undone um a lot of the good work that we had done on reducing alcohol harm in Scotland mm-hmm. um i were i could keep going i think we have an hours worth conversation but out of respect to your time and our audience i'm going to uh close out this discussion but i did want to just ask adam for one minute i know we've been talking about the the policy environment and how public health can shape you know uh, a, a world where people are guided towards less harmful consumption of alcohol and supported in that but if somebody listening has is listening for a personal reason has a knows a person who's using alcohol har- you know harmfully and i'm sure you, you get this kind of question all the time what do you think that what recommendation might you have for them 
Right. So we've been talking a lot about policy strategies and ultimately at a population level, it's policy that will make the change. But at an individual level, uh, there's also uh, um, good, good and proven strategies for reducing um, the risk from alcohol consumption. So I would just say um, to encourage people to speak to their healthcare providers um, uh, about, about consumption. There's a number of good um, tools that uh, healthcare providers can employ to identify the risk from, from uh, alcohol consumption to individuals and use um, and begin a process of uh, both identifying those risks and, uh, and reducing consumption. Thank you for that. And I want to uh, conclude by thanking um, Allison Pabudu and Adam for this fantastic discussion. Um, I certainly learned a lot, although I came away with more ideas and questions than I came coming in, but I, that's a sign of a good and rich discussion. Um, and thanks to all of our audience members for joining the Public Health Power Hour on alcohol. We also have two great reports at vitalstrategies.org, one called Sobering Truth and another one called Trouble Brewing, um, one about subsidies that uh, alcohol companies get to do things like marketing, where in fact, many countries are giving tax breaks to alcohol companies for marketing to us and our children. Um, that's That can be found at vitalstrategies.org. And follow each of our speakers on Twitter. They've got, I've been following their handles for a few weeks. It's um, pretty, some excellent information from them and their organizations. Thanks to each of you. I'll be closing out the Power Hour now. Allison Pabudu, Adam, thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.